Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Tias Little. Tias's unique and skillful approach enables students to find greater depth of understanding and awareness in their practice, both on and off the mat. His approach to the practice is interdisciplinary, passionate, intelligent, innovative, and full of insight. Tias synthesizes years of study in classical yoga, Sanskrit, Buddhist studies, anatomy, massage, and trauma healing. He began studying the work of BKS Iyengar in 1984 and lived in Mysore, India in 1989, studying Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga with Patabi Joyce. His teaching brings together precision of alignment, anatomical detail, and a profound meditative experience. Tias is a licensed massage therapist, and his somatic studies include in-depth training and cranial sacral therapy. His practice and teaching are influenced by the work of Ida Rolf, Moshe Feldenkrais, and Thomas Hanna. Tias is a longtime student of the meditative arts and Buddhist studies, beginning with Vipassana and continuing in Tibetan Buddhism and Zen. His teaching style is unique in being able to weave together poetic metaphor with clear instruction filled with compassion and humor. Tias earned a master's degree in Eastern philosophy from St. John's College in Santa Fe in 1998. And he is the author of four books, The Thread of Breath, Meditations on a Dewdrop, Yoga of the Subtle Body, and The Practice is the Path, which is his latest book, which we'll be talking a little bit about today. So hello, Tias. Welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. Mm. Hi, Jacob. Uh, wonderful to hear you, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have this opportunity to chat with you again. You were episode 67 of, of Chitheads, and now we're in the 120s somewhere. And um, I've said this a few times, but I, I said that after episode 100, I was going to go back and re-interview some of the people from the first 100 episodes. Um, and of course, you were high on that list. So here we are. Um, but since then, since that time, which has been, I guess it's about three years ago now, at least, uh, we've worked on a few things together. You gave the very first talk uh, for the yoga seminar, which is um, still continuing, a little bit of a different offering now, but still continues. You offered a wonderful talk on, on Shavasana as being the most important pose. You've done a course with us on meditation, and you're involved in our yoga philosophy program. And of course, you'll be teaching another course with us in the new year at the beginning of 2021 uh, on yoga and the art of seeing. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the content of that soon. So how's it been going to us? We're in this time of COVID. So everything sort of flipped on its head. How have things been um, for you at this time? Oh, let's see. Challenging, of course. And I very much you know, feel into the the suffering globally of yeah. of all sentient beings at this time and uh and and yet i also uh, note that it's uh it's a call to become more adaptable you know we're such adaptable uh mammals uh in in our lives can change very readily when we apply ourselves and so i'm having to shape shift you know to to uh begin again in many ways and to uh, find creative ways to express. And that, that in of itself has, has been a rich uh, minefield of, of opportunity. So you say adaptability, which of course is kind of built into the yogic teachings as an you know, important 
thing to draw on right now. Is there anything else, you know, from the teachings of yoga that you feel have become particularly useful um, at a time such as this? Well, I think so. I think, you know, certainly uh, presencing ourselves through mindfulness is, is so important. I, I know that, you know, when, when people experience stress and their active winds get blown upward into neck and head, and there's a lots of anxiety, fear, and sleeplessness, it makes us more vulnerable to uh, being intolerant and, uh, and not as sensitive and present. So I think this is a greater time to be kind and to be patient and to be receptive. And so certainly I practice that for myself and for my family, my, uh, my immediate family, wife and child, and all of those who I, you know, the few that I get to encounter these days. This experience of COVID and its, its aftermath and ramifications have been really transforming the yoga scene. It's hard to know what it will look like when this is all over, because certainly many of the longstanding studios have been completely decimated by, you know, this event. So I'm curious how you see this kind of changing the yoga community. Um, and, you know, are there good things um, that are coming out of this besides the, you know, alongside the perhaps not so good things like people losing some of their businesses and livelihood? Well, sure. I think the industry, like many industries, is really in a spin now. And, uh, and I think it's exciting. I think that the yoga industry got really bloated um, from all of the training curricula that's offered so quickly. And, uh, and just the supply and the demand made it such that uh, yoga really expanded so fast. And so now there's a, a pruning. I think there's a the big yoga tree is pruned. That may be a good thing for people have to really uh, decide, uh, well, gee, is this going to be my lifeline? Is this going to be my career? And, um, and those of, of course, of us who are very drawn to learning and deepening our, our understanding have such a wonderful opportunity to study online with people in the field of, of anatomy and physiology, as well as the Dharma meditation and, you know, yogic practices, yoga philosophy. And so it's a, it's a fantastic time to be a student if you're willing to put yourself in the park and do a Zoom asana. Uh, I love your, um, uh, your hybrid asana and, uh, contemporary words thing that you did. I was just listening actually to our first interview together. We covered a lot of ground and, um, it was, it was quite a wonderful conversation. Um, but I was triggered into hysterics every time you attached asana to something. So I'm sure that will stay the same today. Um, <laughs> you've obviously had to move everything online and of course, observing you do a really wonderful job at hosting online events. And, and of course you're continuing collaborations with us and other platforms. Um, has this, you know, changed kind of your experience of your own um, student community? Like how has this um, shifted from, you know, you being primarily a kind of in-person teacher and with your wonderful center in, in Santa Fe, how has that shifted your kind of experience of community? Well, I think it, it has re, reworked uh, and, and redesigned our, our community. And um, we have lots of new students who have come in 
And it's, it's exciting to be able to touch lives who otherwise wouldn't be able to schlep 2,000, 3,000 miles or over the ocean to uh, study with us. So what a blessing that one can receive the teachings in their own living room. And, uh, and of course, I find, you know, the real challenges of being in front of the screen is, is you know, does it, is it really uh, aligned with the soul journey? I think a lot of us uh, may find ourselves asking that question. Is it, is it a selling out of the soul? Is it a way of, of sort of cheapening or, or somehow overexposing? I think of the Native American peoples who, you know, never wanted to have their picture taken. And then here, you know, we are oftentimes uh, showing our face uh, for long stretches of time uh, out into the public. And so I personally do a lot of protective work where after I've been, you know, exposing on the uh, computer camera, I take time to really uh, nourish back inside. And, and I think that helps keeps me grounded. And I encourage my students to do the same. So it's not so disembodying just being in front of the camera. Mm, yeah, that's, that's such a good point. I've been staring at the computer screen through the work with embodied philosophy for a long time before COVID. And even just looking away at that whole 2020 rule of looking away from the screen for 20 seconds, 20 feet, what is it? 20 seconds, 20 feet, 20 something, forgetting what the other 20 is. <laughs> um, but even that just helps to kind of, you know, give you a moment away from the, the virtual reality. Um, one of the things that we touched on at the end of the interview last time was the art of self-practice. And as I was listening, you just talk about that, just pointed out how, how central and important that, that, that is now. And so I was wondering if you'd talk about self-practice a little bit and, you know, for those who are perhaps not sure how to begin, especially in a climate where a lot of times we're kind of in a, in a way sort of made dependent upon teachers in various ways. And, and we can't really imagine, you know, where we would begin to develop such a home practice. And some might think they need, you know, a teacher training to even, even be able to start such a thing. What are some of your kind of suggestions for, for students that um, maybe don't want to practice yoga in front of a screen every time they do? Right. Well, this is a very good question really at this time. And because it's important for all of us, I think, to have time for cocooning in inward in the flow of our life. That is, we have a time to uh, reflect, to pray, to breathe, to feel. You know, what conversation from yesterday? How did it affect my nervous system? What are my memories of myself as a young child? And, um, and what are my feelings? Uh, how do I feel about myself in the world today? And so that reflective time is extremely important. I, I hope that everyone will be able to carve out 20 minutes, uh, usually first thing in the morning when we first get up, you know, take our pee and go right to our cushion and just have that time uh, to cherish uh, in silence, in stillness, and with the prana, with the breath. Um, so um, then I think we, we, we begin to uh, to trust our own inner process and then you know once we get on the train of our inner process it's a long journey down the tracks and and everything all that we experience uh, becomes part of that train and so this is what we loosely call self-practice and uh and some people never make it out of this station 
But, you know, once you do, you feel like, oh, well, this is really my ride. This is how I'm going to process all that comes up for me and those around me. So then we add to that via, you know, the, the support of teachers online, whether it's practices or meditations or pranayama. And then I think that's a really good way to, um, to feed our, our base, which is a self-empowerment self, uh, uh, time, self-reflective time. So I think if one is judicious in using online teachings to support their own uh, self self practice, that's ideal. Yeah, I'm really uh, I really appreciate that you went when I asked you this question. You went straight to meditation first. You know, waking up, taking your pee, which I'm, I notice is the uh, is always the sequence that you offer, um, which for me is certainly always the case <laughs> as I get older in years. Um, you know, and I'm wondering how you feel about this. I mean, obviously, you're a teacher. One of the things I really respect about you is your emphasis on the subtle practices, you know, but perhaps many people listening would have assumed that self-practice meant asana. And that's kind of the, you know, the go-to when when someone thinks about yoga in our kind of contemporary world. Do you, you know, see this as, as problematic, this kind of over... Um, uh, conflate, you know, this conflation of yoga with specifically asana? Well, that uh, ties into your previous question, Jacob, which is such a good one, is how is the industry changing? And if the industry is maybe be, will become less calisthenic base and less uh, exercise base, then, you know, people will use their time at home to be able to process the anxiety or the fear or the uncertainty or the loss of a loved one and, and grieving. So then the practice becomes the way we live our lives or, you know, per the title of my recent book, the practice is the path. So then every, everything that enters through us in our life and every encounter all of our relations, that they, they become part of this uh, in, introspective process or what's called in contemporary psychology, interoception. So we're really seeing into how the world affects us. And so it's quite helpful because, um, you know, we, um, we do make our own reality. We see the world in the, the way that we are conditioned to see it, and that can change. And so, so that's a good thing that the practice not only be about taking care of ligaments, connective tissue, bones, glandular, glandular activity and, and brainstem, but also really, um, about attending to the soul or attending to the, you know, what the Greeks call the pneuma, the, the, the life force, the spirit. And so I think it's about an education is that, wow, I'm not only going to do downward dog and triangle, but I'm going to sit or do yoga nidra or um, listen to a meditation and deepen my uh, connection inside. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems like the events of, of 2020 have, have, have made, you know, the need for more than simply asana, you know, basically an imperative. So um, perhaps we wish we would have gotten there without the pressure of 2020, but uh, I guess, um, you know, anything helps. So let's talk about, you're mentioning your new book, The Practice is the Path. So let's talk a little bit about that book for a moment. Um, I'll read the full title. It's The Practice is the Path, Lessons and Reflections on the Transformative Power of yoga. First, Tias, I just was curious, you know, why did you write this book? What inspired you to write uh, this book right now? Well, I really wanted to 
to share my own experience, uh, which started, you know, really in um, a very fast and a very active uh, type of practice, a kind of power practice. And then just how, you know, after being on the train, on the path for many, many years, it, it's my practice has really morphed. I, I've stayed with it and, and it's, it's been such a source of nourishment for me. And, and so I really wanted to share uh, what, what I've felt and encountered along the, the path, uh, like, you know, working with right effort, uh, which is, you know, one of the foundational teachings in the Buddhist uh, training is how, how do we apply ourselves with just the right amount of effort? Do we over effort? Do we under effort? And, uh, and looking at ourselves as a striver, as trying to please others, as wanting to be liked, as wanting to be approved of in the yoga room and the, with the mirrors and with um, the sweaty bodies and in, in, uh, in scantily clad clothes. It's like, well, am I good enough? Um, how can I get better? Oh, and I'll never be good enough. And so then I started to really listen to all the messages that were dropping into my inbox which, you know, as a male yogi, were, were, were many. It's like, wow, you know, am I, am, I need to be more, more strong as a male yogi or I need to be able to uh, experience um, ultimate enlightenment and, and my mind not move and I need to, you know, uh, be a conquest of uh, this practice uh, uh, so that I'm, uh, I'm on top of, the, up top of the mountain. And so... I really had to look carefully at my own striver, and that's been incredibly valuable as I look at my own pride, my own shame, my, my own longings, my own fears, and how they all got marbled into my downward dog and my vinyasa, uh, unbeknownst to me. So I wanted to share some of that in, in the book with practices like Right Effort, uh, or chapters like Right Effort, and How Speed Gets Trapped in the Body. And you know, working with beginner's mind, and the always one of my favorite topics, uh, uh, the quest for the perfect pose, is how we oftentimes, as I have struggled with for many years, wanted to be perfect, wanted to get everything just right. Mm. Well, I want to talk about a few of these things in turn, um, but I want to go back to something that you mentioned, which I I thought was a really interesting part of the book, which is the pitfalls of getting attached to attached to a particular discipline and kind of having this rigidity around, oh, well, I have to do it this way. And, you know, I have to follow this lineage, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you encourage this flexibility, which I think is totally warranted. Um, but as I was reading it, I was wondering, there is this tendency within the yoga community, particularly in a kind of consumerist, you know, driven yoga community to always be seeking sort of the next best thing. It's like the new branded yoga. And we have this you know, this common term, you know, salad bar spirituality, where people are just picking and choosing the things that really predicate, predicate their own ego, right? So they, they essentially buffer themselves up rather than, than engage those things that perhaps might induce a, a more profound transformation. So, you know, uh, you know, you emphasize in the middle way, so I'm sure there's something in the middle here, but, uh, you know, just a little bit about on these two extremes, like on the one hand, the 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 extreme of uh, over rigidity around a partic particular dis discipline and then on the other hand this kind of 
well, not having the ability to engage deeply with anything because you're always seeking um, something new. Right. Um, good question, Jacob. I mean, it really comes down to identity. And many of us uh, look to substitute an old identity and the identity that we've inhabited from the family of our upbringing or our religious background or our scholastic training or our experiences being an adopted child, whatever it might be. So then we substitute in another identity. It was certainly the case for me. It's like, well, you know, now I identify with this type of lineage or this type of practice. And this is the mantra, this is the code, this is the series of poses we do. And we really kind of, you know, uh, shine our badge, you know, polish our badge, like this is the new identity. And, and, um, and so I think there is a fair amount of substitution going on. And, you know, uh, adapting Eastern spirituality has been a big part of that. And so then we start, you know, at least for me, I've looked carefully at my identity maker, you know, called the ahamkara in the Sanskrit, literally means, you know, the I maker, the I doer, or, you know, what the Buddha uh, famously called in his direct experience of illumination, you know, I've seen the architect of the, the builder of the house, meaning, you know, how we, how we build ourselves up in various ways. And we may need that, we may need to work through shame and um, and self-condemnation or lack of self-worth. We may need that empowerment for the first 10 years or so of practice, what I call the first, the first stage of, of the journey. And then at some point, if we, if we uh, ex- are exposed to uh, the teachings and we have enough support from our therapist and our, our guides, our gurus, our coaches, then we're really to start shedding some of those layers of identity. And so, you know, oftentimes I peep into yoga classes when they were happening live and say, well, you know, people are really trying to embody a kind of uh, identity that's empowering and that serves its place. Uh, but then then there's this, um, this process of really uh, shedding you know, what I was describing in the book as uh, working with the exoskeleton, you know, where we like a um, like a cicada dropping its shell, you know, um, there's a kind of noise in any kind of identity formation that we might assume. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a noise and there's mm-hmm. also um, a discomfort. Right. And it seems one of the things also that you talk about in your book, which I really appreciate is the the resistance to discomfort or thinking that, you know, the point of, of life or yoga is just to be blissed out all the time. And um, actually one of the things you said in the last episode we did together was that in the bliss body is the body of sorrow, um, which was really beautiful. And um, so, you know, how do you see this playing out in, in kind of the modern approach to yoga and um you know how can we get back past this um this resistance to discomfort without you know again falling into the extreme of self-mortification uh which is also a very real thing Hmm. right well you know uh, accepting and 
being uh, tolerant of discomfort is is important because I really don't think you know the the path is about being free of any kinds of uh, of dukkha or unpleasantness. And so that that makes us much more adaptable back to that idea again, is that we become more able to deal with when we can't get a signal or uh, our our 16 year old, you know, uh, uh, starts to fall apart uh, taking Zoom school school classes or when um, we get in a, a, a tiff with our partner. So then we really kind of need to hone that witness consciousness and yeah, one passage actually comes to me from uh, my book on the chapter called Not Knowing. It goes like this, as witness, as witness, we are not separate, remote like a satellite observing from on high, but rather find ourselves smack dab in the middle of circumstance. In the thick of our lives, we learn to witness and feel whatever's arising, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We witness not only the harmonious and the sublime, but also the mess, the hurt, and the longing. So I think if we become more emotionally adaptable, more, more pliable to uh, accommodate all kinds of, of situations, including the, the long, long pandemic that we're in, uh, then we have more, resili- more resilience, more resiliency. And uh, and so it's not about simply making our connective tissues more pliable, but our heart more pliable. And I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about spiritual spirituality. You know, a lot of the yogic teachings around uh, spirituality are, are essentially work with the emotional body. And uh, and I, I really encourage all uh, yogis to work what I would what I call the subtle body is little feelings of impatience or intolerance or shame or self-doubt or this kind of thing. Mm. So can you talk a little bit more about the importance of not knowing, which is one of my favorite teachings from your book? And it really resonated with, um, I was uh, uh, moderating a, a panel last week for AAR on on the scholar practitioner. And one of the participants, Ram Das Lam, um, referred to ideologies of certainty, which I really loved this expression, ideologies of certainty and speaking about how, you know, we have this kind of addiction almost to being certain and about things. And, and that certainty gets kind of wrapped up in our own, you know, as you were saying, identity and, and, and and so it's like our identity becomes sort of synonymous with what we know. And I feel like that's particularly true in the United States, you know, especially with these rigid kind of uh, political silos that we're seeing. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, the importance of not knowing from your perspective and how we can slip into that um, through our practice? I think that not knowing is something we need to tuck into our shirt pocket and really take with us in every encounter. I certainly do it in this interview now. Like, I don't know where we'll be in uh, in three minutes from now. And that calling to to welcome not knowing is is enables us to live with uncertainty. And if there's anything we've experienced in the last nine months during the pandemic, it's just how great uh, and uncertain things are. So in a practical sense, we don't know what will happen two hours, two days, two months from now. 
But then, of course, in the in the Dharma, in the training of mind heart, uh, we we must sometimes at some point encounter our own uh, way, the ways in which we start to uh, construct or to imagine how things should be. And in that sense, we're always getting in our own way. We're always stepping on our own toes, our own assumptions, our own beliefs, our own expectations about what yoga is or what enlightenment is. And so in that sense, when when we really open to, well, I really don't know, I don't know how to open myself up. I really don't know how to do that. When we are vulnerable and uh, receptive and attuned, that's when something else can come in much greater than ourselves. Otherwise, we just get trapped in some small version of me, you know, <laughs> uh, some some iteration of me. And um, and so that's really, you know, we walked out to the very edge of the cliff if we are ready to. And we say, well, look, I really don't know how to get to this next level. For me, oftentimes that comes up in a dream where, you know, like, for instance, uh, I'm in my own dream work, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll experience this moment where I'm on the edge and I can't take, you know, I'm a cl- on a cliff and there's a very small passage and I can't take a next step. And how do I do that? I can't do that on my own. So in the shamanic journey or in the spiritual training, then uh, there's there's a, a, another force. There's a, there are allies, entities, uh, animal totems, gods, uh, stones that that come in that that can uh, can shepherd us to the next level. So you know now we're sort of getting more into the world of dream and the world of the Sambhogakaya or the the world of mystery. Uh, but uh, but that's where really profound change occurs. So I'm always trying to get out of my own way. <clears throat> and the best teachers I've had over the years are those who show me how to how to get out of my own way. So let's talk a little bit about you mentioning dreams and you're actually giving a talk coming up soon um, for the yoga seminar on dreams, yoga dreams and transformation, I think. Um, is that is the name of the talk? What is the significance of dreams, and and how can we as as yoga practitioners start to leverage or harness or or connect to our dreams if if we don't feel already a kind of connection? Right. Well, certainly, you know, the dream state is one that uh, yogis have pointed to for uh, for millennia as as a valuable way of working with the depth psyche. Uh, the vertical descent into really the underworld, what's you know referred to in the Greek uh, mythology as down into the subterranean uh, depths of the uh, uh, the realm of Hades and the river Styx, um, and Persephone, who was the daughter of Zeus, made uh, this descent into the underworld, and 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 so we you know through many traditions there's this importance of at some point, you know, ducking down underneath the everyday consciousness of, you know, computers and, and uh, messages coming into my inbox and my to-do list. And how do we do that? Dreams are really a great portal. Uh, nighttime dreams 
a really great portal into that realm could be also daytime dreams. If you can just, you know, be still long enough, maybe lie on your back and stare up in your living room ceiling or, or um, go on a walk and stare out over the ocean or up into the sky. It's like, hmm, what might come to me in this time of rest? And then there'll be little snippets of memory and feeling and, and longing and terror and fear and uh, that, that, that surface. And, and then we, we really harvest, uh, we, we really say that, you know, a, a, a dream unworked is like a letter unopened. And, and so we have these little gifts come to us. And if we start attending to them, uh, like a gardener will to his or her plants, we start attending to what comes to us in those moments when we're not so busy or trying to get uh, the job done, then we can really start to see, hmm, you know, what's what's underneath the surface of my busy mind? And it's uh, it's remarkable. There's a whole ocean uh, there uh, to um, to like a scuba diver to to drop into. And it takes a little training to be able to get under the surface. You know, um, usually the ego doesn't want us to go under the surface. It says, "Hey, look, stay with your to do list." You know, "Hey, look, you've got so much to do. Uh, don't 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 pay any attention there." Uh, keep working harder, keep on top of things. And so there's a uh, resistance on the ahamkara, the egoic side to even starting to, um, to drop, to drop down. But it's important, of course, because you know, many teachings describe this surface consciousness of computer screens and to-do lists and uh, job descriptions as a kind of spell that we're cast in a spell. And so we start breaking that spell when we can get underneath them. And so, you know, even just just remembering a dream fragment, uh, um, you know, the other, just two days ago, I, I remembered a dream fragment of a, um, a friend of mine who I knew from third grade. And, and then I went back and I, you know, did some communion with Mike Purple, you know, and what was it like to sleep at his house? And, you know, what was it like for my, you know, eight-year-old imagination? What did I feel? And how did I think about myself in the world? And so that allowed me to, to do a kind of musing and reflecting. And it was just a, the smallest of dream fragments. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, I I appreciate what you're saying. It's beautiful, and um, uh, it reminds me of of something you had said just at the very, the tail end of the last episode. Uh, so I'm glad we're talking a bit more about it extensively about it now. Um, you had said you you had advised or suggested the listeners to cultivate areas of uh, your life that are like sleep. Um, and you talked about it a moment ago when you were saying you know lying on the floor. You know, I was having this conversation with a friend. It seems like the these sort of planned doing nothings as it were are are kind of replacing what used to be a lot more spontaneous right it's like we used to be i mean i can't even remember the last time i was bored because there's just always something there's always some utensil there's always something some digital to, device to distract me and it seems you know it kind of begs the question of well, you know, did these moments of boredom and doing nothing that were just spontaneous because there wasn't much to do, did they serve a kind of biological purpose? And and are these more cultivated nothings, you know, like meditation or lying on the floor or or like you were saying, um, uh, experiences that are like sleep but are not quite sleep, um, they kind of uh, 
they're they're kind of biologically and spiritually necessary. Do you think that's that's true? I do. I, I think contemporary neuroscience describes the brain or the nervous system this way: is that uh, unfortunately today people when they rest they go to a default mode of of anxiety. Like every time I, you know, have a chance to to catch my breath over my a morning granola or in the evening before I fall asleep uh, or first thing in the morning when I get up, my mind just goes lickety split uh, and, and it, it gets caught in, in these cycles of anxiety and stress. So that becomes our default mode. So what we need to do in these times of rest or sleep-like states or serenity of, of, of embodying serenity or shantam in the Sanskrit, the, the peace or stillness or repose or quiet, you know, quietude, that we actually, our default mode becomes a place of, of, uh, of, of quiet and uh, nothingness. And, uh, and so then the nervous system can regenerate. It's what happens hopefully during sleep, although people have very restless sleeps, of course, as well. But uh, the more we can drop, that becomes our default mode, that place of, of rest. The greater the body, mind can self-regulate and heal. And we're talking about the respiratory system, the endocrine system, hormonal system, the uh, glandular system, digestion. So unfortunately, the body, does, mind doesn't know that state of deep rest, uh, no, I put in quotes. So yeah, so being idle, uh, not doing, you know, what in Chinese is called the Wu Wei, uh, where the Taoists really uh, celebrate, emphasize the not doing, uh, said in the Tao Te Ching, in not doing, you achieve all things. And that's very hard in, for our Protestant work ethic of, you know, uh, here in the middle of the pandemic, it's like, oh, there's I've got to, you know, my, my work is on, on the line and uh, my clientele is, I'm risking losing my clientele. I have to work harder. I have to go faster. And some of us are just caught in this whirlwind, this dust devil of a spin. So it takes time to find practices, whether it's leg up the wall pose, the sitting meditation or Shavasana or Supta Bhattakonasana or, you know, um, or just lying uh out underneath the pine trees to just really allow our nervous system to to get back to its place of really deep uh, deep rest. Mm. Yeah, that reminds me of something I once heard. In fact, maybe it was you at a workshop. Um, uh, this line: "The first thing to do is not to do," um, which has always stuck with me, and um, and I always I like to quote that ad nauseum. You know, it's, it's it's interesting as you're talking about dreams. It's sort of making me reflect on how when I am more relaxed, when I am more in a more restful state, I actually I actually remember my dreams much more. Like when I'm more agitated, when I'm more stressed out, and and in that kind of wagon of of activity, I have less access to my dreams, and and it just sort of makes me wonder if. You know, at that state of agitation, it almost encourages the inability to see around or beyond the kind of cycles of of Maya and, you know, the various illusions that are kind of architecting our understanding of reality. And if we could just settle down and relax a bit, we we not only get access to our dreams, but also kind of the 
the associated creativity that permits us to even imagine something different than kind of the status quo that's so oppressive in various ways. Well, that's right. And and that's the spell, you know, that's the trance that we're under. And according to, you know, classical yoga teachings, it's called avidya, which literally means not seeing, you know, we don't really see uh, because we're so uh, in the trance of what I have to do and, and am I keeping up and am I good enough and I need to make more. And, you know, there's this, unfortunately, I think what's happened in, in, in 2020 with the with the virus uh, wrecking havoc worldwide is that people unfortunately experience even greater corrosive corrosive ingrown thoughts of I'm not going to survive so the survival mechanism kicks in and that keeps us in the trance and so how do we get out of the trance you know whether it's um, having enough uh, experience in, in one's training to do meditation or uh, to spend enough time reflecting on dreams, or you have the help of a shaman, or, you know, in the uh, hallucinogenic communities today, it's a guided uh, path into another v- altered uh, state where it's either through psilocybin or ayahuasca. It's like, well, gee, you know, I don't have to be in the trance. So, you know, then we just need to train ourselves to to change channels and the channel uh, the spell of this world you know here i am knocking on the table and and palpating my hamstrings you know this world is um is so uh spell inducing that it's very hard to change the channels like you know the old-fashioned radio where you just get so much static it's like i can't hear anything i'm just going to go back to this i'm just going to go back to this channel of my to-do list of my busy mind of of, oh, I need to make more, I can't let up. Um, So when we learn to start to dial in enough to really hear what's the voices, the the dream bits, the the insights that are are in this other, um, coming from this other channel, that's when we start healing the subtle body. And when spiritually, emotionally, we can really evolve to the next level. And, uh, and so it, it's really just learning to change channels so that there's not as much noise. You know, we need to cut through the noise. And, and so what we do then is we start to feel more. A lot of it's getting back into the sensory realm of the gut, you know, the gut chakra, the throat chakra, the third eye center. What's the feeling there? Because feelings uh, in that sensory awareness, we can become more uh we can attune more to subtle vibration and that that's very helpful to to change channels well and you already kind of mentioned um in passing the art of seeing and um and so this is a great moment to segue into a discussion around the content of your upcoming course for embodied philosophy which is called darshan yoga and the art of seeing so how does seeing further play into this theme of of changing the, the channel. And what exactly do you mean by seeing here? I take it's, it's something a little different from simply the physical sight that I am, you know, seeing around me at any given moment. Right. Well, you know, when we're in the trance, uh, we can only see in this, you know, three-dimensional realm, and we can only see 
um, this what this world around us that seems really hard and fast and and fixed. Uh, and so uh, when we we work with our own imagination, we work with our dreams, or we're uh, in in uh, working with our reflections. We um, start to see the world as less solid, more fluid, and uh, and and yet direct. I think direct insight. You know, to word, use the word vipassana, which is the really kind of backbone of all meditative trainings. You know, gaining gaining some insight into the thoughts I'm having today, or the uh, the voices inside of me. I can hear that voice or listen into that voice inside of myself and should i continue to listen to that voice or or not and so it's through this process of listening and seeing that we be begin we over time will have more choice in our life uh, about what's good for me and and uh, what's appropriate for me what's best for me and how can i trust this very process so in the course, you know, uh, with Embodied Philosophy, we're going to look at the importance of being seen. The really, it's when, you know, we can really be seen or be heard is that we can heal. And like, for instance, I have a, you know, a teenage uh, uh, son. And, you know, when I just really listen to him, I stop everything I'm doing and I just listen or I just look right at him, look right into his eyes and so when we can see the other, it's, it's when we develop a relationship. If we can't quite see, we're, we all get marooned. We're all, you know, islands uh, 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 away from each other. So it's when we're seen, of course, in the spiritual context in India, when we're seen by the God or we, in the darshan, we go to a temple and there's a figure inside the temple and, you know, many of the pilgrims will jockey to get into position so they can be seen by the deity. And I, under, I always wondered, what is that? You know, in my, my, my various voyages, pilgrimages to India, it's like, what are people doing? Like, what is that to actually stand in front of the icon of the deity? It's when we're actually seen uh, that allows us to heal we are received, and there's an exchange that occurs uh, that uh, that's really powerful. A kind of transmission that occurs. So, uh, so that's um, something that are, that happens when we're in relationship with others, or oftentimes it comes up in a dream. It's like, wow, I you know I was with uh, an old coach. You know, or, or an old uh, uh, band uh, instructor, and he or she was just there witnessing me, because oftentimes we we are not witnessed enough, uh, of course, in our life. So that direct witnessing is is a real path to healing. Yeah, I'm. I really appreciate you bringing up this. You know, seeing it's not just about us seeing something; it's also about being seen and the relationship um, around that and. And I agree with you the the um the time I spent in India as well it's i i think it's it's such a such a fascinating feature of their spiritual relationships with deity this idea of being seen by the deity um and it also kind of brings up sort of the role for me at least the role or the status of visual objects or art more generally in kind of this practice of the art of seeing and and so I'm curious where that comes in and what the significance is of 
of having sort of symbols and and deity forms and yantras and other kind of, for lack of a better word, spiritual art that we might see or that might see us. Right. Well, the murti, uh, M-U-R-T-I, you know, is the likeness of the divine. And so the murti can have, you know, an uh, infinite number of expressions. And, uh, and thus, you know, it's really a polymorphous imagination. You know, there's, there's so many ways to actually encounter uh, the energy of the divine or the sacred or uh, the, the, be- the beautiful, you know, the aesthetic, uh, which is such an important experience. So art uh, serves this purpose, whether it's a, you know, a relief of, of an image of, of the Buddha or a Bodhisattva like Manjushri or Avalokiteshvara or an image of Shiva or a Yantra where you have, you know, geometric designs and um, uh, color. So really that invokes the mind, the awareness to harness to the aesthetic experience of beauty or the likeness of the divine that manifests as um, as uh, geometry or um, or uh, color. And, uh, and so that is really an invitation to see outside the spell again. And, uh, and the, the direct experience of beauty, you know, we experience that oftentimes practicing, you know, pose, poses like half moon or Danyurasana, the bow pose. It's like, wow, that's a really sublime feeling in my fascia. That's an aesthetic feeling. Or when we're in a meditation and our mind, you know, finally just subsides for a moment. It's like, ah, there's this flavor, there's this taste that arises, which is really um, uh, aesthetically pleasing. And so when we can attenuate, when we can yoke to that, when we can um, embrace it, it, uh, it kind of helps to pull us out of our blind spot out of that uh, spell and then we open to you know the realm of beauty and and um and appreciation and sensitivity it uh, makes us more sensitive and you know americans we live of course and you know think of the big uh, interstates and the big avenues with box stores you know your walmart or your kfc or just you know endless uh um, commercial strips that really don't invoke beauty at all. So, you know, we, there's a dearth of beauty in our direct experience. So I think um, the more we can experience that, that aesthetic beauty, uh, which in the flip side, of course, is terror or, you know, where we get frozen in a frozen state away from that aesthetic. We, we need to work with both sides of our, um, our nervous, you know, nervous system and imagination uh, then uh, we can, um, you know, really start to, ke- you know, breaking the spell, and and so I think the darshan or the seeing uh, allows for for this kind of yoking or this this connection. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, as you're speaking, is sort of coming to mind is it seems like one of the results of kind of the, I don't know, the art industry, the gallery industry or however you want to call it is that 
it sort of categorizes art and beauty in this sort of, you know, entertainment arena. It's like, oh, and entertainment, of course, is always something that's sort of, it's just icing on the cake. It's sort of, you know, it's it's not necessary to our basic needs, but it's, you know, it's over there for us to enjoy when we have, you know, the privilege and the time to do so. Um, and I take it, you know, from what you're saying that um, you see kind of the experience of beauty and the cultivation of of the kind of vision and seeing that's associated with it as being really central to our healing, our spiritual journey, and maybe life itself. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a there's a real uh, longing. There's a real need for the imaginary realm to flourish. And so, this day and age, everybody you know is on the couch. Uh, from 6 to 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. on Netflix or Amazon Prime. And, you know, it's uh, uh, in the pandemic, uh, watching episode after episode. And I do it too. It's There's a way in which we need our imagination to flourish. So then in the yoga journey, how do we do that? Um, there are ways uh, which the imagery uh, that I'd like to touch on in the course on, uh, on Darshan and the Art of Seeing Imagery evokes that. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, image of the divine or image of the geometrical shape or um, image of um, the, the Buddha. But also through our dreams, you know, many images. I mean, basically, you know, circumstances in dreams are, are just images. And so then we work with our own personal history. What's our own, what's our own image bank? You know, we have a whole storehouse of images in our consciousness, many of which we, uh, we, we disregard or we deny or we overlook. And when we start to work with our own uh, storehouse of images, uh, it's, it's a way which we can really journey. Uh, we can really um, make progress on the path. And, and so certainly in the dream time, it's, you know, food it's it's uh images of food it's images of disgust it's images of hiding images that come about from leaving home or returning home images that relate to loss or shame so lots of categories where these images fall into and then when we start to really attend to them uh that's what starts shifting our subtle body so um you know uh, long before television radio uh, Wi-Fi connection, you know, in the yogic teachings, there were lots of images. Uh, um, you know, I always remember the uh, in the westward migration of uh, the Indian teachings uh, across the Gobi steppes into China in the on the Silk Road. Uh, there were, um, you know, uh, basically merchants traveling and then uh, in china there's just this a remarkable buddhist monastery built into the sandstone bluff and it's just uh stories of these uh merchants coming into these caves where there were just phenomenally you know uh colorful images of the bodhisattvas it was really phantasmogenic it was just really hallucinogenic um, it was really uh, wild, and it, you could see how it enabled uh, these believers to, uh, to, or these merchants to change uh, their uh, uh, their belief system and say, "Wow, this has really opened up a whole another part of my imagination." 
So, uh, so really, this this image making such a long history, an important part of the long history of yogic practices working with the mind. Yes, well, I'm you know I'm certainly excited for the course, and I know it will be a great one, like all of your courses are. So. Um, I'd like to encourage everyone listening, if you're interested, to um, uh, check it out. I don't believe it's uh, quite open for enrollments yet, but um, if you're on the Embodied Philosophy mailing list, um, you'll receive an update um, as soon as it is. So, T.S., it's been wonderful chatting with you uh, this afternoon. As usual, it's great to to see you and talk to you. Is there anything else, you know, based on what we've been talking about and in terms of, you know, the art of seeing or... Um, dreams or anything else that we touched on today that you'd like to um, kind of close with or remark upon? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I think, you know, in a practical way that uh, listeners can, uh, can if, if they sit, if everyone sits for 15 minutes and just make an open invitation, like hmm, what needs to, what needs to come to me now? What might need to surface? And, there might be all kinds of, you know, more superficial thoughts about yesterday, today, and tomorrow, or there might just bubble up a memory, a thought, a image, and then one can work with that. One can then sort of hold that delicately in one's hand uh, and and just just uh, notice, uh, commune with that image that comes out of your own memory bank and. And and be exploratory, see where it goes. So um, that's maybe a real practical practice that that the listeners can attend to. Yeah, I love I love that question. You know, what might need to surface? I think that's a it's a good takeaway as we as we close the conversation. Well, thank you so much, uh, T.S. I've been speaking to T.S. Little. Um, our second conversation after episode 67, um, the first episode with T.S. on the Chitheads podcast. We've been speaking today about his latest book, The Practice is the Path, Lessons and Reflections on the Transformative Power of Yoga, as well as um, topics related to uh, T.S.'s upcoming offerings at Embodied Philosophy. Thank you so much, T.S. It's been such a pleasure. You're most welcome, Jacob. It's a joy to share with you. Bye for now.